Hello and welcome back to the Big Esports Podcast. This is episode number 52 with Mervyn Lau from Toki Games. He's the founder, CEO, legal counsel, and for anyone who's a startup founder knows, there's many more hats to wear. We talk about his history in business and esports and gaming as a whole, uh, working for the Singaporean government, working as a lawyer, coming into what he's doing today. We talk about a startup founder like him having no fallback options. It's do or die for him in business. We talk about gamification and remove some of the woo-woo around that talking about proving that it is something positive and it's not just a buzzword. And then we deep dive a lot into gaining funding, understanding your exit, picking the right co-founders, looking after your staff and checking your ego, Jocko Willink style. So for anyone who listens to Jocko podcast, I think you might enjoy this one too. For any of the show notes for anything we talked about today, you can head to bigesports.gg forward slash 52. That's the numbers five two. For any of the links, uh, you can see Mervyn's lovely face on there and any of the topics that we have talked about today. Enjoy this episode. I know that I did. Thanks so much for being a listener of this podcast. We've created it really to help increase information sharing and understanding of the esports market. If you'd like to help us out, feel free to leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you do and make sure to share this with your friends. Hopefully we've been able to provide some fantastic information to you and a bit of a learning experience over this period of time, whether you're looking to skill up enter the industry or you're just looking to monitor to see how things are going if you'd like to put yourself forward as a guest suggest any others or ask any questions feel free to connect with us at bigesports.gg or on any of the social media platforms at bigesports underscore gg Mervyn, welcome to the podcast, mate. How are you? I'm, I'm doing well, thank you. Hi, Chris. Yeah, fantastic, mate. I think you are the second person we've had on the podcast from Asia. So there you go. Interesting. Glad to be on. Yeah, no worries, mate. And I guess, you know, what we're going to talk about today is uh, a little bit different because it's not, I, I guess in the past we've we've had at least the past five or so podcasts, it's been hyper esports focused, yep. but we've got something that's a little bit more gaming and um, and a bit softened esports. So I'd love for you to kick off the podcast as we always do and let us know a little bit about your interesting history in business and how that brings you to where you are today. Sure. Um, so currently I'm the CEO, founder and legal counsel of Toki Games. Uh, we are a startup based in Singapore. Um, I actually founded this company in 2017. Uh, prior to that, actually, I was working as a lawyer. So I was a lawyer for four years in the field of intellectual property. Um, and uh, before that, I was actually working for our government in Singapore. Um, so yeah, we've... I mean, I've come a long way as a uh, as a business, and you know, as, as since the day that we were founded, um, and yeah, yeah. So, how did the um, ideation and creation process go for you at at Tokyo Games? And can you give me or the listeners at least a little bit of an elevator pitch as to what you do? Sure. Um, so, really, when we first started out, you know, I, I pitched this idea to a couple of people who are now my co-founders. Um, four of them, actually, to be specific. And, um, you know, I came up with an idea that, you know, as an avid esports fan, fan myself, you know, I really wanted something more to do during an esports match, right? And so mm. I thought, you know, it'd be quite cool and, and quite fun, you know, as a side project to come up with a game that I could play. Um, and that that's how it really started as, as a product, um, you know, and, and, and really focus on the product. Um, and, you know, now it's kind of evolved into a situation where we're doing more uh, B2B to C, um, you know, kind of business model uh, where we speak to companies, clients, stakeholders within the esports ecosystem uh, with our solution. Uh, really, what we've come up with is a gamification software as a service. Um, and the, you know, the various people that could use this are brand owners, you know, your venues, uh, your event organizers, tournament organizers as well, your professional teams. Uh, even your creative and marketing agencies. So all these guys are basically have different needs for our software. Um, mm. And that's how we're really catering to the market right now. And how, like, how do you provide benefit to the people you're looking to plug in then in, in like, what's your, what's your sales pitch? Sure. So the bottom line is really, you know, our software enables you to better activate and engage your audiences. Um, this could be anything from, you know, all your marketing objectives, from acquisition to retention, you know, to monetization. Uh, but really, it's it's meant to be a full service kind of software solution where we could customize various um, functions and components within the software 
to bring out and to really hone in on certain types of objectives that the stakeholder might have. Mm. So there's no really one fit uh, to each stakeholder or to all the stakeholders. Um, what we typically do is we enter into a pretty deep consultative process with, with each stakeholder. And then, you know, we will kind of hone in on exactly what they want to do. And then we'll, we'll, we'll customize it that way. Do you, do you have some stats about that? Like I know that for myself when I'm watching esports tournaments, especially in the breaks, like, you know, one of my favorite esports tournaments of all time that I talked about in a LinkedIn live stream this morning is the International but I remember my friends and I were watching it live at an esports bar here in Melbourne, and it took about five hours worth of time to get through a single best of three, I think it was, semi-final. And there's so much downtime where we're super bored. You know, the analysts are talking, we're not so interested in that. There's waiting, there's delays, there's, you know, the stream um, was waiting for the players to set up their mice and keyboards, et cetera, et cetera. Like, do you, do you have any stats about, you know, what exactly these people are looking for and, and how you're addressing that? Sure. So in general, you know, it's funny that you mentioned TI because that's one of the events that we did. Um, in general, people who are introduced to our game uh, or to our gamification software platform, uh, within which a key feature is what we call a spectator game contest. Um, and mm. in this spectator game contest, just to give you and, and the listeners some context, um, it really is uh, some form of contest where you get to enter as a spectator for free, obviously, and then you get to play a game during the actual match. So that's that's the first thing that distinguishes, you know, this spectator game contest in the sense that, um, you know, a lot of contests kind of typically run prior to the actual match. Mm. So you kind of do your selections or whatever, and then, you know, you, you watch the match after that and, and you finally get your results at the end. But we wanted to flip the tables a bit um, because, you know, as, as I said early on, the, the, the key emphasis here is about um, active engagement, right, and active activation. Yeah. So we wanted to make it feel like we wanted to sustain a level of, you know, entertainment and a level of immersion, I guess, throughout the entire match itself, like you said yourself, there are certain downtimes, right? So during those downtimes, um, during the match, is when we uh, let our players kind of do things on the game. Uh, for example, switch up the positions or add to their position, positions, etc. And mm. uh, what we find is about 96% of people that get introduced to our game um, actually do try it out at some point in time. Um, on, a, on a general basis, though, we are, we're looking at about a 50% rate uh, so if you're looking at 2,000 people watching a particular stream, and if they are, um, you know, adequately informed about a game being run at the same time, uh, and in this our game, uh, we'll find around 50% of people playing the game. Um, so that's the the amount of uh, you know people and some numbers for you to digest <laughs> regarding how many people actually interact with the game. Mm. Yeah, because. I mean, there's so much discussion in so many other podcasts about the detriment of being so attached to mobile phones and, you know, people not concentrating at dinner and such. But you see this all the time. I see people pulling out their phone during meetings because they're disengaged. You see people um, when they're watching television or Netflix with friends or at home or in a public space, you know, pulling out their phones, scrolling through Instagram and the ad breaks, et cetera. So is that what you're looking to capture? Are you looking to capture that wandering attention? Exactly. I mean, honestly, to me, if you're offline or even online and you're and you're watching an esports match, right? I mean, you are, you really are interested in it. And but you know, the, the reason why you even you know divert your attention away from it is because, truthfully, like like you said, there's really sometimes where in in the match there's there's not much to look at and there's not much to do. So you you know you're hopping onto Instagram, Facebook, etc. Uh, but what we really want you to do is kind of, you know, concentrate on the, the events that are happening during the match. So our game doesn't even care who wins or loses to get the match matchup. Um, it's really mm. about what's happening at that point in time or in the next five minutes, etc. So that's that's really, um, you know, our, our key target uh, profile, I guess, of a player. Mm. And who who else is um, targeting things like this at the moment besides gamification? Is there anyone like I? The only other example I can really think of is Unicorn with their bingo app that they um, trialed during IEM Sydney 2018, trying to get people to you know maintain engaged. Is is this a, an emerging trend that you're seeing? Well, um, so we've done a fair bit of research on who are our competitors in the market. Um, to be very honest with you, I, I don't think there's a direct competitor in the sense that. Um, our give, gamification technology is uh, patented technology. So, you know, for, for one, we know that it's novel. So there's nothing out there that really exists in the exact same identical way. 
However, mm. there are similar, um, I guess, you know, in the US fantasy esports and fantasy sports is really big there. Um, you know, 60 million a year play fantasy sports in North America. Um, and, mm. you know, the, the, the thing here is that I think um, in terms of pre-game contests, I think there's a bunch of them. Uh, for live game contests, I think what the common or the typical uh, mode of, of gameplay right now is something what we call proposition uh, gameplay, where they would post a question to you every five minutes and you would answer that question and that's that. Mm. Um, yeah, so, you know, that doesn't really fit into our model as well. We, we really wanted a model where, you know, we think of players and teams as representing, you know, think of, about it like a stock or share, right? So we wanted you to to buy shares of these players and teams and kind of put it in your roster. And not only do you get to put them into your roster, you get to select the amount. So you could buy one Apple stock, but you could buy 10 as well, right? So we wanted to as well, you know, let your conviction uh, determine how many uh, copies of a particular player that you want to put into your roster. And so that's really our, our game. And, and we think it's, uh, I haven't come across anything that like that. Um, so mm. I hope that answers the question. Yeah, you, yeah, you did for sure. And and look to to prephrase my next question. You obviously don't have to answer direct numbers, but I'd like to learn from you um, in regards to revenue streams. Where where is your main pitch? Are you drawing revenue from the events to partner with you? Are you relying on revenue from the consumers using your product from sponsors? Is it, is it a mixture? I'd be interested to learn. Sure. So I mean, being a B two B to C business, um, the revenue stream right now is almost fully concentrated on you know client agreements. So typically we do retainer agreements or a one-off, you know, campaign agreement with a client. And that's, mm-hmm. that's um, so we're kind of, you know, doing it on an enterprise commercial agreement kind of level. And um, so that's that's really where the main revenue is. Um, where our value add comes in uh, and what we try to do to justify that amount that the client is paying to us is, you know, again, each client has their own stakeholders as well, right? So, you know, we want to give them the the kind of matrix and the ROI numbers to show to their stakeholders. For example, if they, they are event organizer and they need to show uh, a sponsor or an advertiser like, hey, look, in the past, you know, I, I know you've bought ads and to put into our event space. Um, and, and we really couldn't just, I mean, you know, we could only estimate a certain amount of impressions that were given to that ad. Now you could actually do a much more deeper analysis into those, uh, you know, actual actionable matrix uh, to say, you know, not only do we know how many people did look at a particular uh, ad, but we also know how many people, you know, kind of interacted with it and gone further to, you know, you know, become a, a, a user or consumer for yours, etc. So these these are the things that we are able to provide um, through our platform because, you know, again, we, we measure everything on the platform and, uh, we, we tend to want to give all these numbers to the stakeholders because we know that at the end of the day, you know, the conversation has shifted into sustainability and into monetization, et cetera. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I mean, adding to that to the lack of data, right? We yeah. saw Gfinity in Australia um, shut up shop and, and, you know, part of the blame that they provided was unable, the inability to get in-depth consumer data from Twitch. Um, and we've seen that through many other brands as well, especially these brands from outside esports that esports people often call non-endemic for those listening who are brands that aren't inherently involved in the esports space. They're saying, I don't know exactly who the fans are, where they live, what ages they are, how they're activating, what their earnings are as well, and all of these important things to learn. And I guess if you're providing another data capture point, that sounds like a strong proposition for you as, as Turkey Games as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, just to share with you, I think, you know, we've been fairly active in the esports, you know, community in, in Singapore at least, right? And or the greater Southeast Asian region. And, uh, you know, two years ago when we attended a summit um, in Singapore, I think then the question was really, you know, people were trying to figure out still, you know, what was esports? And if I was a non-endemic, how do I get into that, that scene to become an endemic after that, you know, and stuff like that. And, and I think, you know, over the past few years and this year when we spoke at the same summit, um, the conversation shifted to more of one of sustainability. You know, people were talking about, hey, look, so, you know, I know that a lot of money has been inv- invested into the esports scene. We've run a couple of events, you know, we've sponsored mm-hmm. a couple of teams, etc. But, you know, I'm having troubles answering to my board right now on on exactly what, what is going to come out of, of this, right? And yeah. Um, 
you know, obviously, you know, the people who are in the industry, we know that is a long-term play. Um, ultimately, what the esports audience represent is your next generation of consumers, right? So that's why everyone is getting to the space. But I guess for, you know, for now, you know, it, it can't be a situation where the ecosystem is being run by brands trying to come in and brands just throwing money into events and teams, etc., and hoping, you know, that something comes out from it, right? They, they actually need some form of assurance. And at mm. the end of the day, you're going to have, you're going to run out of brands at some point in time who wants to sponsor the tournaments. And the, ir- the irony behind this is that the more people come into the space and the more tournaments pop up, you know, here and there, uh, the more saturated and the more time starved the entire environment becomes. And then it becomes a situation where everyone's kind of competing against each other uh, in addition to competing for the consumer's attention, right? And so mm. that's where we're at right now. I feel like we're heading to that. And that's that's where Toki Games is really positioning ourselves within the space in the middle of the ecosystem, saying to everyone, hey, look, you know, I mean, we, we get that you guys have the traditional way of doing, uh, you know, esports sponsorships, esports uh, marketing, et cetera. But, you know, we, we could do you know, uh, real numbers here for you guys. And we could actually show you tangible results in terms of exactly who you're engaging and how often are they engaging with you and how long are they engaging with you for, you know? So, yeah. Mm, For sure, yeah. And this is a discussion that uh, we've had a few times here on the podcast Mm -hmm. and on my LinkedIn live streams and various other places. And to to wrap up my thoughts on what you're saying is that so many people in esports right now are trading on the industry numbers, not on what they're actually delivering. So they're not providing what uplift they can give to these sponsors. They're not providing direct ROI. They're not um, providing numbers that they've actually achieved themselves or they have direct people have achieved. They're talking about here's the global market. It's valued over a billion. You know, here's teams that are valued at 310 million, according to Forbes, like Cloud9, and Team Solimit opening a $30 million facility, and the Essendon Bombers in Australia, a football team getting into esports. But they're ignoring the fact of what exactly are they doing. And I think it... It can be dangerous, especially with so many esports team decks that I see that come across and say, our uplift is going to be from sponsorship dollars. That's where our pie chart is you know, headed towards, and that's the global industry average. However, they don't have a single salesperson to actually close those sales. So how do they expect to you know, essentially, in quotation marks, pay back the investment money that they gather to grow their company if the thing that they're trading on, they're fully just not even paying much attention to? Yeah, I think, you know, they, that, that's the thing, right? I mean, sponsorship monies is nice. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, if, if you really want to ensure some form of longevity, you've really got to investigate exactly on why someone's sponsoring you, right? I mean, clearly, they're not doing it for fun. Um, you know, they, they have a bottom line to meet as well. And at the mm. end of the day, they could have been doing it once or twice without knowing any better, just as, you know, as, as kind of like an experiment. But it's not going to be sustainable in the long run. And, and that's what we're trying to do now. So, I mean, early on, you brought up like Gfinity, right, in Australia. And, you know, I, I, you know, I, I also heard about their, their, their closing shop and, um, you know, I, I, I looked into it. And, you know, it's a pity whenever these things happen, I feel like um, it's quite unnecessary. Maybe in a fourth spew of reasons, right, it could, it could be that, you know, they, they didn't really explore other methods of, of trying to show that ROI. And, and if they did, perhaps, you know, the story could have been much more different. Uh, so yeah, it's it's one of those things where I think people need to pay a bit more attention to exactly you know how they can preserve their status within the, the ecosystem. Yeah, and you're seeing a lot of companies get into esports right now because they want to say that they're in the they're in the ecosystem. They're taking a leap of faith because it's exciting. They can see the growth, but. They haven't necessarily got those, yeah, those metrics and numbers pushed behind them. But that's going to start becoming a very serious thing, especially when this first series of contracts that have been signed through, say, the major food and beverage or automotive companies who've been around for almost a year now, yeah. they're going to have to start re-signing soon. So we'll, you know, it'll suffice to see: are they going to re-sign and are they happy with their investment? Yeah. Um, I mean, on that point, I'll just, you know, just just to end off that point, I'll just say that, you know, that's that's really also what, you know, our platform is, is, is trying to do. You know, we're trying to create th- this dedicated domain where a brand can say to directly and establish a, a direct line of communication with the end user and say, hey, look, you know, I've created this this domain for you. And I want this to be somewhere that you can come back on a daily basis, on a routine 
and to you know check out my content you know to to enjoy esports like the way you want it to and, and and to just do everything within this one stop place and the good thing here i think you know is that by having this direct line of communication you're not you're kind of emerging from the noise that's really out there because i mean sure yeah you could purchase an ad and you can put it on on a, on the team's shirt and you could you know have some presence on uh, in an offline or online event but really, who's really watching that, right? I mean, when we tune into an eSports stream, we're not looking at the ads. I get that the ads are there, and I get that subconscious element to it that kind of you know puts that uh, the, the brand into our, our, our minds. But it really is uh, still a passive and linear form of consumption. Uh, and what we really wanted it to do is you know to turn the passive consumer into an active participant of your brand or active ambassador for your brand. Mm, mm. Yeah, exactly. No, I think you made some great points. And I wanted to change tack slightly. So some of the people that listen to this podcast are raising capital at the moment. Sure. They're either founders already, they're looking to create something or they're looking to scale. So I'd like to talk to you a little bit about being a founder, um, about capital um, and a few different questions in there. So to So to start off, can you give a bit of an idea to those listening about what your day-to-day involves? You mentioned that you're the founder, CEO, and the legal counsel. So as with many startup founders, you're wearing multiple hats. Yeah, um, that is true. Actually, there's way more hats than that. But yeah, so I mean, in general, uh, on a day-to-day basis, you know, I've I, 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 you know, work very closely with um, the co-founders and the management of the company. So there's five of us in total. Uh, there's myself, uh, I, I, you know, CEO, and then I have my CFO, Benedict. Um, I've got my COO, uh, who's in, ch- in charge of our operations as well as marketing. Uh, that's Matthews. Um, you know, I've got Warren, who's our chief product officer. And finally, but not least, um, I've got our chief, chief technical officer, um, Thailand. Uh, so we, we, you know, we generally, you know, have a pretty early meeting every every morning. Kind of go through, you know, the agenda uh, for any any new things that have come up um, over the uh, over the night. Um, and during the day, really, we're just you know kind of managing our own departments and uh, hustling along the way, uh, really. Um, and of course, myself, I've I've got to take you know care of our IP assets. You know our contracts, our commercial agreements, etc. Because um, you know myself, I, I think there are two lawyers in this office, uh, but the other one is doing more of a marketing role. So <laughs> we kind of split it between ourselves. Mm-hmm. So how how do you go about the process of picking the right co-founders to be involved? It's something that I guess is even a little bit foreign to me because. I can't give first-hand experience because I'm a solo founder myself, but you're obviously sitting at the really high end with with um, multiple founders. Yeah. Um, so, you know, like I told you, when I pitched it to the people at the beginning of the business, I think that the one characteristic or trait that I was really looking out for is, you know, if there could be an amount of trust within that relationship. Um, at the end of the day, I think, you know, and I'm really proud of this, to be honest, um, you know, when... When people look at our founding team and our management team in general um, at Tokyo Games, um, they are looking at a really unified picture. And that's not something that we put up uh, as a front. Uh, the truth is, you know, we've taken a lot of pains to be aligned in our everyday day-to-day and even in the epic kind of story that we're trying to tell. Um, and it's, it's not something that's being forced, but rather, you know, because I had the privilege or the liberty to, you know, speak to these people at the very beginning, you know, I, I had the first chance uh, to, you know, assess if they are even aligned to begin with, you know, at, at the very beginning. And also, I think that the trust factor, another thing that comes in is whether they trust me as as a leader of, of the team, mm. right? Because I feel like a lot of times, um, you know, when startups fail, sure, I mean, it could be financial, it could be other, a whole slew of other reasons, but really one of the things that um, we're looking at um, is, you know, infighting amongst the, the management team, right? And when that happens, I feel like, you know, you, you can take two steps forward, but you're really taking three steps back every single time. And not only that, you know, you're pulling down morale in, in the entire company, etc. So as far as we are concerned, you know, alignment is a huge part for us. Uh, trust in, in, in our processes is also another thing. Um, you know, we try not to micromanage so much. Um, we try to go on a, a really a collaborative front with each and every single employee. So it's, it's a fairly flat hierarchy right here. And it's only because, you know, we feel like we want everyone to fight for the company, right? Obviously, you know, even even your 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 employees uh, in, in the company. And mm. to, to even get that fight from them, 
you need to let them, you know, rise up and 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 say something and to fight you on certain things, right? And mm-hmm. so we, we don't want to suppress anyone and we encourage people to kind of, you know, stand up to, to state their opinions. And if they really think something is is going in the wrong direction, uh, we've all, we're always open to be convinced. And frankly, I like being convinced by a different viewpoint because that means, you know, there was something better that I didn't know about and someone did educate me about that. Yeah, and I guess it's like what you were saying. Um, there's a, a famous ex-Navy SEAL called Jocko Willink who has a fantastic podcast I listen to. I kind of binge that at, at 1.5 times speed over a few months and listen to all, all 130 of them. And he talks a lot in there about if you're not getting pushback from the people you're working with or from subordinates, you're doing something wrong because it means they're too scared and you want to hire people that are smarter than you and work with people that have different experience than you and you want them to feel very open to pushback. And while sometimes it feels bad because you might have made a wrong decision and they're pushing back, that's why they're there. They're the expert. And it's your job as the founder, CEO, and you know, head honcho to check your ego and to realize that actually it's your ego that's getting in the way here. You know, Maybe it's your ego that can't stand being wrong and you need to put that aside and actually listen to what they have to say. Yeah, I think it's really you know, mutual respect for each other. Um, in the first place, if you didn't even respect your co-founders or really honestly anyone in your company, yeah. Um, you know, to a certain degree, you shouldn't be even working with them uh, to, to begin with. And so I think, you know, I, that's that's the advice that I have for, you know, other, you know, potential, um, you know, as someone who's looking to start their own business um, with with a team, right, is, you know, first and foremost, look at whether, you know, have have a fairly casual chat first with whoever you, you, you're looking to, to pitch your idea to. And when you're pitching your idea, I guess, don't just go up to someone and, and just, you know, you know, kind of give a, a brief verbal kind of thing. You know, you, you really want to kind of put down a plan and, 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 and state really clearly, you know, what your goals are, what your objectives are, how do you think you're going to get there, the methodology and the philosophy of the company, you know, and et cetera. Because if, if, you, if you do all these, it might seem like very small things at the beginning, but honestly, what you're doing is you're setting the ground for, an, a point of alignment, a, a point where you can align with that particular person, right? And if that person can kind of come, come on board at that point in time with everything kind of laid out, the, the, the skeletal framework of how you intend to run the business and where you intended the business to hit to, then, you know, generally speaking, that's a pretty good recipe for success, right? So, yeah, mm. that's what I'll say. Mm. Yeah, I definitely think it's about, yeah, I think there's two major things I'd like to take from that. Number one is is my mention on ego, and number two is your mention on respect. Yeah. If you have that fundamental respect and if you're hiring the right people, you know, that's where things change. And I've had that experience as an employee. You know, I've worked in one company before where they just kind of, they underhired. They overhired um, heads, as in they hired too many people yeah. at a too low of a salary with too low of experience. Whereas I worked for another company where I believe they underhired, they should have had more staff, but they overpaid compared to the industry average, and also they hired over-experienced people who really seemed to care and understand about what they were doing. Yeah. And while I had similar workloads, I think in both in the end, because in one of them I was picking up the slack for people who couldn't do their job, and the other one I was given the responsibility and the respect that as a completely remote worker in another country, you know, one of my bosses was in Asia, another one was in Europe, and another one was in the US, nowhere near physically close to me, they gave me the full respect and saying, hey, we hired you to do this job, we're not going to look over your shoulder day to day, all we require is for you to keep us informed with what's going on, and I was able to work autonomously and, and achieve some great results. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I mean, I completely agree with that, that's, that's the similar model that we work with, I think... The other thing I would say is that, you know, um, for us, we, we also believe in being proactive with our, you know, the, the guys under us, right? So at the end of the day, you know, I'm, I'm kind of what I call a people believer. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, um, you know, I'm the last one standing kind of, you know, look, I'm, I'm always trying to find some positive and, and, you know, someone's strengths, right? And I kind of believe that, look, I, I feel like everyone has a particular um, you know, um, you know, room to grow. Mm. And I feel like, you know, it's, it's really, it's really on us as leaders. Um, if someone is not growing and someone is not performing in, in our company, I, I take it upon myself and, and the management team. 
and to ask ourselves, you know, what are we doing wrong? We don't go to the employee as a first step because honestly, I think that's that's where it starts with, right? I mean, could it be that we're not giving them in, enough opportunities, or you know, we're not we're not you know, kind of giving them the right guidance to to push hard in certain areas and and not uh, so much in the, the others that don't really matter that much and stuff mm. like that, you know. So it's 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 a question of really how how much do you care for your employees and how much do you want to see them grow? And a lot of times, you know, in doing interviews um, with new guys, we, we always ask the question of, you know, what is it that you really genuinely are interested to do um, and, and where do you want to grow, you know? And, and, and that's that's that to us, that answer um, really kind of um, either hits it on the spot for us or it misses it completely, right? Because, you know, if they are saying something that goes along the lines that is related to their role that they're coming for, then that's perfect. But I mean, if, if, if someone's just kind of looking for a job, then that's really not what we want, right? We don't want robots working for us. We, we want people who are, you know, actually trying to better themselves and, and are going to be using the company to better themselves as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you've summed it up. I think you summed it up pretty well. Yeah. So I'd, I'd like to, um, something we talked a little bit about off microphone, and I'd love to bring it on microphone now. So to, to prephrase, there's a professional player who I used to sponsor and help manage uh, who played in Heroes of New Earth many moons ago. And for those who don't know, it's a very similar game to League of Legends or Dota 2, and it kind of preceded their competitive platforms. People like No Tail, who just won the international, he came from Heroes of New Earth and a bunch of other players too. And his advice always to young people was get a degree before you become a professional player so you've got something to do afterwards. I'd like to understand a little bit about your history as a lawyer and do you see that now as a, as a great move to be a fallback plan for you? Let's say that you know business, you have a successful exit or things don't go quite well. Is, is, is that part of the reasoning for having that degree? Is it a pivot? I'd love to explore this a bit. Sure. Um, you know, just from the outset, I'm just going to say that there is no fallback plan for me. You know, I mean, I, I get it that, you know, um, so personally, I feel like, you know, obviously, if you have some form of professional degree and you come from a profession, um, generally speaking, the, the you know, if you did want to go back to the, the previous, previous profession that you came from, it wouldn't be too difficult, um, you know, in all honesty. Um, but but I think for me, you know, when I made that decision to 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 move from law um, to do this, it was something that you know it was a fully committed decision, not just on myself mm. but also my family, uh, you know, my wife, um, and, and so uh, you know, obviously, you do need the support of your direct, uh, you know, the people that <laughs> are part of your life, you know, in your personal life. Um, First and foremost, don't do anything that your wife is, is going to say no to, right? I mean, it's just a recipe for disaster. Uh, but, you know, I, I think at the start when when I decided to do this, um, it was one thing where I, I told myself that, look, you know, my livelihood aside, right, when I'm dragging people to do this with me, right, then it is completely unfair for me to feel like there is a fallback plan and there is a plan to go through or whatever because, you know, everyone else's livelihood is are kind of dependent on my leadership right so mm. first and foremost ethically i think that's that's completely wrong to think that way and and even personally i feel like i i never ever thought that way because you know to me i care about this 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 cause and this objective so much that you know um just just to show my commitment as well to the business you know i invested a lot of my own capital at the beginning uh pre mm-hmm. stage yeah so I know money doesn't say a whole lot, you know, but you know, it's, it was just a gesture to show that, hey, you know, let's let's get things in, the, in, in you know moving, and and this is how I'm going to help. Right? And and in addition to that, you know, I I always kind of um do you know six uh, well half a year checks with my you know fellow management guys, you know, just to see where they are and stuff like that. And and you know, in general, you know, I think the motivation from start to now has always been, you know, there's no turn back. You know, because I'm not the only one that comes from a profession, right? Two of my other um, managers come from a finance uh, banking background. You know, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, my CTO comes from a really big um, development company that he, he he left his country for to come to Singapore, um, and and my uh, CMO as well. You know, so I think for us, it's it's kind of like a we're all in in that sense, and uh, there's, there's really no turning back. Yeah, and I guess I hate to draw so many Navy SEAL references because you and I certainly aren't Navy SEALs, but they say, you know, that the people who do the training command there often say that those are the best 
people to come through that training and, and you see similar with founders too. It's do or die. It's I don't have any other plans. This is what I'm wholly invested into. Yeah. I mean, it's true. I mean, I think that's the only way you're going to succeed, to be very honest, because there are so many times, right? I mean, the one thing that we really, really try to do, and, and this sounds very cliche, but I think we really embrace this, is we are true blue hustlers, right? Mm. Every single thing that we can hustle on, we are always hustling. And this comes down to, like, you know, the, the location of the office, for example, you know, the, 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 where we ship in our furniture from everything, you know, I mean, at the start, it was just to give you a, a you know, a, a very silly example, but I think it rings, you know, so we, we're, we're, we're in Singapore right now, but we're not exactly right in the middle of the city. So we're just, just off the city fringe and, you know, we're, we're paying a much lower rent than we would if we were in the city. Mm-hmm. So that, that to me was the first thing that, you know, when we started out, we were thinking, you know, look, do we spend X amount of having a prestigious address or do we, you know, channel that money into something else that could be better used, right? So that's the first mm-hmm. decision we made. And then we, we ordered a whole bunch of furniture from, um, from well, from uh, online source and, and it shipped to Singapore. Uh, the, the entire shipment, you know, weighed in at about two tons. Uh, we assembled everything ourselves amongst the founders and and because you know we just wanted to do the things that we could do um with our own 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 you know efforts uh, without having yeah. to pay unnecessary amount of fees uh, just to get everything done and and we've kind of taken on that kind of methodology and and philosophy all the way through and and, and i think it's kind of worked out well because you know first when you're financially prudent it shows your investor that hey these guys are not just out to you know, pay themselves and kind of use my money to, you know, to, to play on a house, right? Let's just put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're really more serious about, you know, taking the business uh, personally and they want to see the business grow in a way that I would want to see the business grow. So I think there's a lot of aspects where people don't realize that, you know, hustle matters, not just to you, not just the money that you're saving, but to the people who are, who, who, who need to, you know, kind of gain that confidence in the business in the longer run. Yeah, and it's, and it's all about finding out, I guess, as a startup, cost savings, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, does it is it more cost effective for you to pay for someone to assemble that furniture, or for you to go out and um, you know assemble it yourself? And yeah. quite often, it is cheaper and better for you to do it yourself. Same thing if you know how to service the car, especially in a country like Australia where it's quite easy. You know, maybe you should go service the car because it costs you forty dollars for oil and eighteen dollars for a filter. Yeah. And then a couple of extra accessories. You've got a sixty dollar service where the cheapest you can really find around here is like one fifty to one eighty a lot of the time for a service. Yeah. So you're saving over half. So but then there's a the trade off. Do you have enough time? Exactly. And, you know, yeah. likely you do, unless you're the CEO of a big, you know, multinational company. You've you've probably got forty five minutes on a Sunday to yeah. service your car and to save yourself a bit of money, especially when you're a startup founder and you're paying yourself little to nothing <laughs> to uh, to run your company as well, yeah. for sure. Yeah. So I, I wanted to chat a little bit about um, the Singaporean government as well. So you mentioned you did some work for them. Mm. Um, for those people who aren't based out of the region, what's the uh, support like for esports from the government and what's the narrative that comes out of them, if any? Um, I think in general, the, the government in Singapore is really supportive of startups and, you know, any entrepreneurs in Singapore in general, right? Um, for, for esports, uh, you know, it's obviously caught, uh, caught traction in, 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 you know, the past year or so with them. Um, there, are, there are plenty of grants that they, they give out to Singaporean uh, startups to, uh, you know, to start businesses in innovative areas, um, and especially upcoming areas. So for sure, there's a, there's a there's a whole bunch of opportunities. You know, um, if, if if you really needed a government grant to do it, uh, but obviously you have. It's not like anyone can just get money from the government. You need to have a proper business proposal, etc., and as in a scalable business, right? It, it can't just be you know um, a restaurant that you're opening that's going to be esports themed. That that's not going to fly, right? It's going to be something mm. that um, that affects the greater economy as a whole. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Because I, d- I did hear some um, musings out of Singapore that, you know, I guess for startups and, and then also esports as a whole, the government is, is quite supportive. Is it is, is it true that esports is um, recognised as a support by the government? Um, yeah, it is. So I think uh, mm-hmm. there's the Southeast Asian Games that's coming up um, and uh, we're mm-hmm. participating in that. Uh, so it is recognised as a sport. I think, you know, funny enough, I, it's not really a top-down effect here least locally i'll say that it's 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 kind of like a bottom-up effect because there are some prominent um esports um 
uh, I'll just call them uh, figures in, in, in uh, who are Singaporeans, uh, who mm. have a Singapore background. Um, for example, you know, um, Razor uh, Mingliang, uh, who's the CEO there, right? So uh, mm. I think they recently announced that they're going to invest uh, 10 million into the local uh, esports scene in Singapore. And, um, mm. you know, it, it's, it's, it's things like these and uh, prominent people like these who are essentially, uh, who have reaped the, the rewards from the support that they've received from the government who are saying right now that hey look to the rest of you know my countrymen <laughs> who want to enter into the same scene that we are in um you know you know this is my contribution back to you guys and and so that's how you know it's a pretty healthy kind of relationship and, and, and ecosystem that we have um mm. but i mean obviously there's always room, room to improve right i mean um we could be collaborating way more uh, amongst the the, the Local startups that are, are based in, I mean, who are doing esports, etc. But we'll get there. I mean, step by step. <laughs> yeah, and it's and it, look, it, nothing else is great to see esports recognised as a sport, right? It helps with tax purposes. It helps with visa purposes for incoming, outgoing talent. Yeah, and it also shows that how you can reap the benefits of having a headquarters there. You know, the Taiwanese market is booming because that's where the headquarters of Antec and ASUS and Acer and the glo- and the local headquarters, as in, you know, APAC or APJ headquarters for companies yeah. like Intel, global headquarter for Gigabyte, uh, et cetera, et cetera, all, are all in this one location. And that means that while their sales mightn't match other countries, they're able to do with the money more than they can with the other countries because all of the sales from America that are much more due to a higher population are funneling into Taiwan and such. And that enables companies like Razor, with the Singapore example, to yeah fund so much of their local local industry that helped them become something. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, it, it is, it is well, definitely, I feel like, you know, government support is, is really important. I think for us as well, you know, we've received, uh, you know, quite a bit of support from our own, uh, you know, from, from our own um, uh, you know, for initiatives uh, that we've been running uh, in Singapore. So it really helps, especially when the government understands, you know, like, you know, there's one thing to say we recognize esports, is another to really understand what does it entail, right? Um, and, mm. and I think, that understanding is, is absolutely critical uh, because, you know, if, if they don't understand what you're trying to do in, in the larger scheme of things and they're just thinking, oh, you guys are just another version of sports, then you're not going to get very far anyways. So, you know, it's, it's really when they, they have, they take the time to have a consultative process um, and, a, and a kind of like open dialogue with the people that are involved in this new and up and coming, you know, growth industry. Um, that, mm. that's to me that's what really I, I, I kind of value the most uh, uh, for our government you know and, and the way that they deal with um, with esports startups such as ourselves mm, mm, fantastic so um, I'd love to get any suggestions for founders and those listening to the podcast who are looking to create their own startup or raising capital or such at the moment number one I think is identifying an exit plan um, a lot of startup founders I talk to haven't even considered this because they're not looking into the future. However, a lot of investors would like that to, you know, be in the forefront of the mind when you're pitching to them. So how early is too early for you to identify an exit plan? And what kind of questions did you ask yourself about acquisition versus public listing versus is there any other way? Sure. Um, <laughs> well, that's that's a very big topic. Uh, but okay, I mean, I'll, mm. I'll, I'll just start off by saying... You've that. got a very big topic. You've got uh, 25 <laughs> seconds. Let's go. <laughs> so basically, um, you know, it really depends on the investor you're, you're speaking with, right? I mean, for institutional investors, you know, they're going to be thinking more along the lines of a big uh, acquisition in the future, right? So you got to know, like, like, like knowing your audience, you need to know your investor, right, to begin with. Mm-hmm. So... Um, that's the first thing. But obviously, you know, you yourself as a founder, you have certain, um, you know, kind of objectives that you want to accomplish with the business. So you've got to be transparent with that as well, because uh, trust me, if, if there's one thing, you know, investors can tell when you're, when, it, when you're just putting on a show for them or you've, you, you know, you genuinely, you know, had that plan in mind, you know. So mm. first things first, obviously, stay true to your original plan. Um, and look, if, if, if you're pitching it to an investor and, and, and you're thinking, you know, I, I don't want to go down the acquisition route or, the IPO route, or I just want to focus on, you know, at least for the first two to three years on becoming, you know, profitable um, in, in the traditional sense, then then stick by that gun. You know, that's just exactly, you know, that's kind of what, 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 you know, that's our direction as well, you know, kind of 
are reflecting our direction. But but like I said, mm. you know, if an investor doesn't feel your, your vibe or, or if they don't feel like that's something that they want, then generally speaking, you also don't want to, you know, have that kind of investor on board because an investor is not just someone that gives you money. It, it, you know, they give you direction. They, they are essentially your mentors and your, you know, kind of like, um, uh, you know, uh, it's making sure that you're steering in the right direction. And and the moment where, you know, you guys uh, pitch something that, you know, you, you really didn't mean, and then you guys get into a relationship together, what you're going to find out is, you know, the, the investor will be more of a, a you know, um, kind of like a barrier to, to your business than, than a help. Because, because mm. and it's not their fault as well, because, you know, you had told them something else and they're now trying to steer you back onto the original path, right? So it's all about finding that, that, that again, alignment, right, with the investor and, and making sure that, you know, they know exactly where you want to head to. And look, if they're not, not, not on board, they're not on board. Fine, you know, go 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 look for another one. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and and I've I've talked to a founder very recently about something similar to that too, about being absolutely as open and honest as you can because the investors need to know and I think this was in the podcast with Matthew Gunnan. So if you want to listen to that for the listeners, head to bigesports.gg forward slash five one. You can see the episode in show notes there. And he was saying how about how it's so important to be honest because the investors want to know that if you have a problem with the business, you're not going to hide it. You're going to come to them because they're invested just as much as you are. You know, just because you're working day to day within the business, you know, these investors often have a lot of experience and they're also putting up real money behind you. So it's in their best interest to see you succeed as well. You're all in the same boat together. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, I couldn't agree with that more. I think. You know that is the approach that we, we took. Um, obviously, you know we did, to to show you know that 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 you really mean what you're saying as well. I think a large thing that people don't do is you know they don't come up with a really really good and solid business plan. I mean I mean clearly we we did it uh, a bit of an overkill. So our initial like uh, business proposal was about 300 pages long, only because you know it had a lot of good research that we were doing. Uh, clearly, you know, I'm not saying everyone needs to do, the, do, do to do that, but I'm just saying that, you know, don't go to your investor with like an eight page or even a 20 pager that, that doesn't say anything <laughs> or rather says yeah. a lot without saying anything at all. So you, you mm. want to, you know, show that, that direction by showing the research that you've done, you know, showing that, you know, you know, your facts and figures, you know, what's going around the industry, you know, your go-to-market plan, you know, your marketing uh, strategy, etc. you know, all these things, form that picture for the investor and, and it allows them as well to make a better decision on aligning with you, right? Imagine if mm. they didn't really know much and then they say, okay, yeah, I'll, I'm on board, right? I'll be pretty scared then, you know, because I'll be thinking, well, do you really know what we're trying to do here? Mm. Yeah, right. And it's about saying the most amount you can in the least amount of words, right? And yeah, this is exactly. something that I've been trying very hard over the past year. And I see a lot of other startups, now that I don't do it, I see a lot of other startups doing it too. When they're asked a question, they over-explain and they start going on tangents and talk about possibilities, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas, you know, someone who we've worked with in the past um, with James, with a partner in BDM of ours is, you know, answer the direct question and that's it. Right. And then maybe if there's some silence, then you can start to input something else. But just try to be direct and, and um, yeah, answer what's asked of you and nothing more. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I don't know really much to say about that, but, you know, I think yeah. in, in general, you know, uh, you know, we, we conduct ourselves pretty transparently, uh, I mean, with, with full transparency to our investor, um, only because, you know, I feel like, uh, you know, to begin with, when we did enter into this relationship, um, you know, it was, again, it was one where I think a large part of it was he trusted the team uh, uh, first. And then he, 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 because he trusted the team, he was willing to yeah. kind of listen to, you know, what we had to, to pitch to him. And, yeah. you know, because of that, I think, you know, at a, at a very beginning, you know, we kind of laid on the ground rules to say, look, you know, if we have good things to tell you, we'll tell it to you, but equally, you know, when we have problems and we need your help, we're definitely going to come to you as well. So let's just, mm. just be, you know, uh, on a common understanding regarding that. So a, a topic that's, that's uh, quite a passion point for me, we talked about off microphone and, and I gave you a bit of a challenge to say, hey, in the industry, there's a few buzzwords. There's things like blockchain, there's things like esports, people talk about meditation and the possible woo-woo that surrounds that, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I wanted you to explain to the listeners a little bit more about gamification. You know, what are the buzzwords out there that people should look out for and avoid? 
And where can people go to read some solid information with some backed up statistics, numbers, case studies, reports, studies, what have you, to prove that it is a solid thing, it's here to stay, and it does actually add something appealing to your offering? Yep, sure. So... I mean, there are two aspects to gamification, right? I mean, um, the first is a qualitative aspect, and then there's the quantitative part, right? Um, I'll talk about the qualitative part first. I think, um, you know, when people hear the word gamification, the first thing that that jumps into their mind is the word game, right? And they're thinking it's it's all about a game, um, you know, so games are gamification, but really that's not true. Uh, generally speaking, you know, gamification is defined as, you know, um, uh, creating an environment with ga- familiar game mechanics and dynamics in a in 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 a context where there's there's no no game involved, right? So, for mm-hmm. example, what we've done is obviously when you're spectating an esports match or a sports match, there's no game involved. You're watching something, and it's it's a consumption of content, but you're not actually playing a game, right? So, what we've done there is that you know we've gamified the process to make it fun for you to go through certain game mechanics and dynamics while you're watching a game, right? So that's the first. Mm. first. Um, and I think in terms of, you know, how, you know, so we've, we've done quite a lot of research on this part as well and how the idea of gamification really came about. Um, you know, to, to us, um, it, it's really about creating an authentic and meaningful experience, right? And, and, and the thing is, you know, when, when you do gamification and when you get people to, 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 to be involved in that process, um, what you're really doing for them is you're saying to them, hey, I have this experience for you and I want you to go through it so that you can form a memory, right? And, and that's, that's what, you know, I think to me, what gamification really means. And because that it means that way, right, um, it, it also means that when you're doing a silly game, like a spin the wheel or, or, or some, you know, for the lack of a you know, better example, uh, let's just use spin the wheel, right? Mm-hmm. It is gamifying some, you know, to a certain extent, but it's really a silly form of gamification, which really doesn't give you any experience. So you know, the first things first is, you know, if, if you hear someone saying that they're gamifying something and then you realize that the, the degree of gamification is, it's, it's is really negligible uh, to none, then mm-hmm. they're not using the term right, right? Because the end goal of gamification is to create, again, that experience and that memory. Um, mm-hmm. So that's the qualitative side of things, right? And then the quantitative side of things, obviously, is that you want to see a greater level of activation in terms of people. Um, so I'll, I'll take an example where, you know, they conducted a study for gamification in, in a university. I think it's in Australia, actually. Um, and what they did was that it was for a psych, psych course, a psychology course. And mm-hmm. uh, they wanted to encourage the students to, first and foremost, critique the papers that were being submitted, as well as to kind of, um, you know, submit their own pieces uh, to a particular uh, domain um, and uh, as part of a game. Right, so uh, it, it was meant to be a learning uh, kind of educational um, objective for that particular case study. And what they realized was obviously, um, oh no, not obviously, but what they realized was that when they did gamify the process of, for example, when you did uh, submit in a good critique and people were voting on your critique and you know you ended up on the top of the leaderboard, etc., um, a lot of a lot of students were way more motivated to kind of you know participate in the um, in, in in this you know, exercise. And the ultimate um, uh, um, kind of like a validation point for the professor was that when they conducted a test on on the, the material that was submitted, right, they, they realized that the amount of knowledge retention that was in the minds of the students uh, from what the articles they were reading or their own articles that they were submitting was way higher than, than, than it would have been, you know. So, um, I think that's a very good example of of of, of using you know a, a kind of like a fun experience to learn as well as to retain information. Uh, so obviously, when you put it in a commercial context, you know when you are using a fun experience to learn about a brand and to listen to their messaging, um, then you're going to be retaining it way more, right? And and that that kind of leads me back to my final point, which is you know I think you know in this day and age where um, you know clearly everyone is fighting for. Uh, audience's time, um, you know, it's not about, you know, no one cares what your message is. Let's just be clear about that. You know, they don't care mm. what, what what your story is. 
you know, they really want to know and they want to be given a reason about why they should really be listening to you to begin with, right? So that, that's the problem with a lot of brands and a lot of people out there who have really great stories to tell, you know, about how they could contribute to a vibrant esports, you know, scene or how they have been contributing, but they, they haven't really found the right recipe to communicate that to the audience. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I think it's a good, yeah, I think it's a good start for an explanation. Where where should people go to do some more research themselves on this topic if they might still be sceptical? Um, you know, to be honest, we, we did it the, the traditional way. So we, we dug up some uh, uh, academic databases uh, we've studied, um, you know, one one paper that really left an impression on me was uh, done by two Harvard guys, um, and they really talked about the the experience economy. Um, and I, you know, I suggest that as a good read. And and the thing is, you know, I think um, if you don't mind, I, I like to say this part as well is that you know, right now, mm-hmm. sports is being consumed in a passive and linear fashion, and and it, it is it, it mimics um, a service in a, in a content service in a sense that. You know, you you kind of watch TV like a service, right? Your 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 mm. network gives you a service, and what they really need to do is they need to evolve into an experience economy. Um, and and the the best you know kind of case study is someone like Disney, right? So Disneyland, you know, when you go to Disneyland, that's you're paying a ticket for the experience. They don't even need to hard sell you on the the items that they're selling in the stores right there, because when you take a ride and you know you look at all these cool. You know animations and and the ride is really cool and everything as an adult you know i still go to the store to buy a shrek hat you know not that i need the hat not that i'll ever wear that hat but hey look i i, I like the experience and you know i just went there to, to, to buy something and i think a lot of you know uh, it's, it's a worthy point because you know first people need to be buying into the experience before they will naturally want to kind of you know um you know give you that that the the, 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 the consumption uh as a next step Mm, yeah, the experience economy is an interesting word that you said because yep. I, I remember reading a book about it when I was at Thermaltake and did a report on it, and it's it's an interesting it's an interesting book. I mean, if you look at the general reviews, it's got a five out of five on Amazon that come to you and a three point eight out of five yeah. on Goodreads. It was published in ninety nine, and yeah, it's talking about you know describing the experience economy as the next economy following the agrarian economy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, the industrial economy and the most recent service economy. And it's true, you know, I guess in in a wider sense, people are paying a lot these days for experiences, especially younger people. And that's that's where a lot of the results are saying they're not focused so much on things and the future, but on, um, yeah, doing something that's interesting to them, fun and, and cool, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, mm. it's to be expected. I, I guess it is inherently, you know, profoundly personal when you're talking about memory, right? So, you know, and, and I think... That's where, you know, a lot of sports marketers and esports marketers really need to start tapping into that. You know, clearly a lot of papers have been written written about this, uh, but mm. everyone's just still of the mindset that, you know, I mean, they don't know any better sometimes and, and they're just going to be like, you know, so look, Chris, uh, I want to get into the esports space, what should I do? And most of the times, you know, the, the person that's serving them would probably say, oh yeah, you could sponsor a team, you could run an event mm. and, and stuff like that. And it's, it's, it's all the wrong direction. <laughs> I feel like, you know, mm. it's to be, one where if you want to stand out from the crowd, which is really which should be your object- objective, then then do something that will stand out from the crowd, right? Yep. No, hundred percent, man. Yeah, hundred percent. I've talked about that a lot in in some recent content across multiple platforms, which is great. Yeah, and thanks for taking the time to introduce that. Um, look, being being mindful of time, can you let us know what's coming up next for you on the on the soon horizon? Yeah, so um, we are actually working on a really interesting campaign right now uh, for a fairly big client for um, uh, first-person shooter competition that's coming up uh, mm-hmm. in uh, October all the way to November. So cool. that's really exciting. Uh, everyone's uh, all hands on board there, um, and so for sure, you know, when 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 we do launch that um, campaign, uh, you'll be seeing it, you know, on, on social media, on our LinkedIn, etc., on our website. Um, and also we have a couple of other campaigns that are currently in the process of being firmed up uh, for later in the year, as well as beginning of next year. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, generally speaking, that's, that's what we have. Fantastic, mate. And if people want to follow you and your business online, where can they do so? Yeah, I mean, the best place really is obviously our website at tokigames.com. Um, you can also find us on LinkedIn, uh, Toki Games. Uh, we post our updates uh, quite regularly uh, there. Not just our company updates, but updates about the esports industry, you know, what's happening with various people, etc. 
And yeah, I'm mm-hmm. obviously if they hop, hop on LinkedIn, they'll be able to see cool podcasts like these ones. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Thanks, mate. Thanks for the plug. Thanks for joining us today. And thank you to listeners for listening into the Big Esports Podcast. It's been a great discussion today. We've covered so many different topics ranging from proving the gamification in the esports market, how you can actually get some great results and remove some of the woo-woo to advice on creating your own startup, being a founder and life before and after startups. Thanks for listening once again today. If you'd like to see the show notes, the topics and any links to what we've talked about today, you can head to bigesports.gg forward slash 52. That's the numbers 52 and it'll be in there. Thanks for listening. Feel free to give us a rating. If it's five stars, that'd be even better on any platform that you listen, iTunes, Spotify, etc. We'll see you in the next one. Bye for now. Thanks for tuning into our podcast today. For show notes, relevant links and upcoming projects, you can check us out online at bigesports.gg or follow us on our social medias at bigesports underscore gg.